0: Welcome to Solely Church. This week, Pastor David Deutsch continues our study through the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Enjoy. We began the Gospel of Mark last week, and so I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark this morning. And children, the words will be up on the board, and Pastor John said we have a treat for you guys today. So as you track these words, uh, know that there will be a little something for you at the end of the service. We are in Mark chapter 1. Pastor John opened with the first eight verses for us last week, and we will begin this morning in verse 9. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. The Scriptures say this, "...in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He was raised out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove." And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the one that I love. With you, I am well pleased. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make yourself known today. That you would reveal yourself to us today. That you would show yourself to us today. We would see Jesus today. And we ask that by Your Spirit You would accomplish this. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. This same Peter who is narrating these words to Mark, as we learned last week, though the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, it is Peter who's narrating those words for Mark. And this same Peter who is narrating the Gospel of Mark to Mark says this in his first epistle. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Beloved, listen, today you will see Jesus. Today you will hear Jesus in Mark and at the table. Jesus will reveal himself to us for love. He will reveal himself to us for belief. He will reveal himself to us for joy. And he will reveal himself to us for salvation. So though you do not see him, you will see Him in the Scriptures. And though you do not now see Him, He will be put forth for you from the Scriptures to believe in Him and to find your joy in Him. As the Pevensey children found themselves in Narnia, they met a beaver who talked. And if you think that's a little bit crazy, please remember that when the serpent came into the garden and spoke to Eve... Her first response was not, oh, look, animals talk. As far as Eve was concerned, all animals talked because they hadn't been around that long, but that's a different sermon for a different time. All right? So I'm just letting you know, if when, when students come to me and say, animals don't talk, I said, have you read Genesis? Have you read Numbers? Sc- animals are talking all over the Scriptures, and so that's where this comes from. Like I said, another time. The beaver says this. They say, Aslan is on the move perhaps he has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if you had an, it had enormous meaning Either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Aslan is on the move. And when we see Jesus in the Gospel of Mark in verse 9, we see Jesus is on the move. Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark is launching a full-on assault. He is launching a raid on enemy territory, and he has come to take back what is his. He is the stronger one who is launching an assault on enemy territory, and guess who he has come for? He has come for you. He has come to get you back, His bride, because you alone are captive to sin. You are captive to death. You are captive to the devil. And with you on your own by yourself, you have no hope. But then Jesus comes fulfilling a covenant found in eternity past. A covenant made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they will not be without you. And so because of that covenant, Jesus comes and he comes to get his people from captivity and bring them to himself and bring them to the freedom of the sons of the children of God. Amen? And what Jesus does when he comes in verse 9 is he does not come at Jerusalem. We would think well of course if Jesus is going to break onto the scene publicly for the first time, he's going to show up at Jerusalem. He's going to show up at the temple. He's going to show up as a priest, but that's not what he does. Well, certainly he'll show up in Rome where the throne is from where Nero reigns. Certainly Jesus is going to show up. If he's not going to show up at the temple, he's going to show up at the throne, but that's not where Jesus shows up. When Jesus shows up onto the scene, he doesn't go to the temple as a priest. He doesn't start in Rome as the king. He starts in the line of sinners. He just unassumably shows up and he lines up behind all these sinners who are getting into this water. And we learned last week from Pastor John's sermon that these people were there to confess their sins and to receive a a, a baptism of repentance. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that that's a line of sinners. But he steps in that line anyways. That's where he starts his public ministry. He starts his public ministry in the line of sinners. And even though he has no sin himself... He will get in the line with sinners and he will get in the water that belongs to sinners. Why? Because he is not ashamed to identify himself with us. He is not ashamed to assume our brokenness to himself, our sin to himself. So he's not ashamed to get in that line with us because that is the reason he has come. He has come in solidarity with us. To get us back, you see. And so Jesus lines up in the place where he doesn't belong. Just unassumably, he looks just like everybody else in that line. But when he gets in that water, he's like no one else in that line. Because he has no sin. And this water is not for Him. It's not His water. It's not His line. It's our line. We are the line of sinners. It's our water. We are the ones to have, that have sin to confess. It's our line. We are the ones who have the need of repentance. Yet Jesus gets in that line, and He gets in that water because He will identify Himself and, commi- and He has already committed Himself to be one with us in our condition, though sinless in Him. So if you see, beloved, listen, the shadow of the cross already is showing over the waters of these this baptism. Because if we look in Mark chapter 10, look over in Mark chapter 10 with me, I want you to see that when Jesus is talking about the cross, he calls it a baptism. In other words, this baptism is more than just going into the water and coming up out of the water. This, this baptism has explosive meaning to it. It means that Jesus is getting in this water and already the trajectory is towards the cross. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the cross is not an afterthought, it's the forethought. It's the thing for which He came. And so in Mark chapter 10, and verse 38, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you are asking.'" Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? You see, Jesus knows that His baptism that begins in the water is going to end at the cross. And so in verse 45, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom. Why is Jesus in this line with other sinners even though He has no sin? Because He's come to serve the people that are in that line. You and me. Why is Jesus in that water that's a water of repentance when He has nothing to repent of? Why is He in that water of the confession of sins when He has nothing to confess? Because He hasn't come to be served. He has come to serve you. He's come to serve the people in that line. And to give His life. A ransom, to make that ransom payment to redeem us from that which we cannot redeem ourselves. And from the very beginning, Jesus is willing to get into this line. No one drug him to this line. No one said, you have to get in this line. The scriptures just say us that in those, in back in Mark chapter one, in those days, Jesus came freely, willingly to get in that line with sinners and to be in solidarity with them, because that is what he has come to do. But not only that, turn back to Mark chapter one. Not only is Jesus launching an assault on enemy territory to get us back from sin, death, and the devil by already welcoming in advance a foreshadowing of the cross by which he will give himself to ransom us. Not only that, Jesus is going to tear open what has been closed to us. Look at verse 10. And when Jesus was raised out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn Open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now that word immediately is important in the Gospel of Mark. Every, every one of your pastors is going to harp on this. That word immediately is used 41 times in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is just staccato fashion. Boom, 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 all the way through. He doesn't linger long on anything. And so boom, Jesus gets in the water. Immediately, boom, Jesus is out of the water. And while Jesus is being raised out of the water, uh, Peter tells Mark this, because Mark wasn't there and Peter was there, it says, and the heavens were torn. Now, that's important that you guys understand that, torn. Not just opened. Not like you open a door. But torn, like you tear a garment. Schizo, okay? Some people pay good money to have schizo jeans that are torn all over the place, all right? So they're torn, okay? That's, that's, that's the language here. Now, the reason why this is important that this is beginning to happen here, that there's a tear in the heavens, okay? This is absolutely vital, and uh, Avery's probably the only one in this room besides Denny, probably who knows the backdrop for this whole thing, because I harp on it all the time. And that is, why is it that heaven has to be torn open? What happened? Well, if we go back to the book of Genesis... God creates the world, and we can argue over what the seven days are, but here we do know this, that at the end of every one of God's creative days, God steps back, and he evaluates the day, and he says, this is good. So at the end of day one, God steps back, looks at his work, evaluates it, says it's good. At the end of day two, he does not evaluate good. He just passes over it. The end of day three, good. End of day four, good. End of day five, good end of day six, very good. So if you're reading through Genesis 1, and you're seeing all this good, 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 very good, but on day two, there's no evaluation. You got to go, hmm. Makes you go, hmm, like a talking serpent makes you go, hmm. Why is it that God did not evaluate day two? Well, let me put this forward to you. The reason why I believe that God did not evaluate day two as good is not because day two is bad, but because day two is incomplete. It's incomplete. It's not finished yet in the way that God would have it finished. What happens on day two? God separates heaven and earth. God separates heaven and earth on day two. And that was never inten- they were never intended to remain separate. They were always intended to be together. That's why in the book of Revelation, heaven comes down and is reunited with the earth again like a bride coming down Okay, the aisle on her wedding day, the scriptures say. Heaven and earth come together at the end of history and are united together. So what happened on day two is not that it's bad, it's just incomplete when God separated the heavens and the earth and he made that vault that's there. And then what happens of course is they're supposed to come together in Adam. The first Adam is supposed to be the one who is the bringer of heaven and earth together. But because Adam sins, that doesn't happen. And then God is and Nate's going to pick up on this next week. And then God kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And what does he station at the entrance of the Garden? What does he station? Two angels and a what? And a flaming sword, right? To make sure that Adam and Eve cannot get back in to the Garden of Eden again. And where do those cherubim wind up? They wind up on the temple curtain, and they wind up on the tabernacle curtain. Those same angels that tell Adam and Eve, you can no longer go up to the mountain of God where heaven and earth are supposed to come together, and they stand guard. That sword and those angels stand guard. God makes sure that those cherubim are embroidered into the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. So that when the priest goes in, he's reminded heaven and earth were never intended to be separated this way, but they're still separated this way because of what Adam did. And guess what? Now, now, right here, when Jesus comes up out of the water, Peter tells Mark, it's starting to open. That which has been closed from Genesis... All the way through history, heaven being cut off from earth, earth being cut off from heaven, now it's beginning to tear. Jesus himself is the one in whom heaven is going to begin to open to God's people. So we witness this little tear that takes place here. Why? Because Jesus is going to be the one who takes the sword, you see. Now, in order for heaven to be open, there had to be a sword. That sword that stood at the entrance to the Garden of Eden had to be answered. And now Jesus is the one who has come. Listen, and by going into that line and through that water, Jesus is accepting responsibility for that sword. That sword to come at him. And so I want you to notice what Mark does. Here he says, heaven begins to tear a little bit. Now go to Mark 15. This is so beautiful. And Mark uses the same word. Peter gives them the same word because they're linking these things together. In Mark 15, when Jesus goes to the cross and He dies, look at what happens. Mark 15, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud voice, a loud cry, and breathed his last. Now watch this. And the curtain of the temple was, same word as in Mark 1, schizo. What started to rip in the baptism rips all the way at the cross. Amen? And at the cross, heaven is now open to us. It began in the water and it ends on the cross because Jesus is accepting the mission of the cross when He gets in the water. And now in Jesus, heaven and earth are come together. That Heaven is open for God's presence to break down into the earth, which is what Pentecost is. And that dove coming down is an advance on the Spirit of God flooding the earth at Pentecost and beginning to do that. And now not only that, we now have access to the heavenly throne because in Jesus, the veil that began to tear in Mark one is torn completely in Mark 15 and heaven is open. And so lift up your hearts. That's right. That's exactly why we do that. Cause we get to go to heaven on Sundays and heaven comes down to us because of what Jesus did. And it all began in the waters of baptism. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? That's your Lord. That's your Savior in that water for you in advance saying yes to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we go back to Mark 1. I'll say a few things real quickly on the dove. Obviously, the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. That's not the word in the Greek is not on Jesus, like He came and landed on Jesus, like a birdie would land on a shoulder. The Greek word is into the Spirit of God descended into Jesus to anoint Him as Messiah and to empower Him for what He's going to do next week when the Spirit drives Him out into the wilderness and Pastor Nate is going to pick that up. And so the Spirit descends into Jesus to empower Him as the last Adam and to anoint Him as the Messiah. But notice He comes down and the Scriptures say, "...He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove." like a dove. And so that automatically takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit of God is hovering like a bird over the waters. And any time we see the Spirit like a dove hovering, we're looking at something new, like new creation. And so the Spirit is hovering over the waters of chaos in Genesis 1, and then creation comes out of that. And then the dove in the in the Genesis account with Noah, the dove is sent out over the waters. Why? Because the dove was sent out over the waters to reveal the new creation on the other side of the flood. And so, any time we see the image of of the Spirit of God given to us as a dove hovering over waters, we know that God is doing something new. That God is making His promises come true, and He is beginning the new creation. And so, look at how all this imagery is coming together. Jesus is coming up out of the waters. The Heavens between the heavens are being torn open and heaven and earth are being united and the spirit breaks through that little tear and starts to descend into Jesus. And God is telling us, Hey, as I've always begun new creation over water and the image of a dove is your reminder of that, just like it is in Genesis one and just like it is later on uh, in the Noahic account. Now I'm beginning everything again. Here is my new Adam and my new creation. And here I'm answering day two, and I'm answering everything that has been wrong with the world ever since Adam and Eve sinned. I'm answering it, and it's all beginning right here in this water with this last Adam who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's truly amazing. It's truly wonderful. But you want to know what? It gets even better. It gets even better than that. And I I need to let you know in advance that... This next part of our sermon. Yesterday when I was writing this out, and I came out of my study, and my wife happened to see me, my mom happened to call. I don't know what to tell you about the effect that that had on me. And... I still can't really get past the wonder of what's going on here in the last part of this this passage. So we, we have all of this going on and that brings us to verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the one that I love, and I am well pleased with you. This brings us to the most powerful part of this passage. Clearly, in this passage, we have, really for the first time, an unveiled revelation of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, the Son of God, and the Father's voice from heaven. But more than that, more than just an unveiling, a clear unveiling of the Trinity, is that we get to see what is at the heart of our God. We get to see what is at the heart of our triune God. And what is at the heart of our triune God is sacrificial love. And church, I'm going to be honest with you, this verse is so undertreated. This verse is so undertreated. And I want you to track with me for a minute because you're going to have to use a bit of your noodle uh, to track with me. But I think this is so important that you see exactly the way this unfolds. There is such a power in this. What the Father is saying to the Son here, in verse 11. You are my son, the one I love. What the Son of God is hearing and what the Father is saying to the Son here has already been... This is where you got to stay with me. This here has already been spoken by the Son of God the one who is receiving this word now from the Father has already spoken this word thousands of years before. And this is important for you guys to get. Before Christmas, before Jesus took on human flesh, He is eternally the Son of God. And when we bump up into God in the Old Testament, and when we bump up to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we are bumping up, we are seeing the Son of God. God has always revealed Himself through His Son. So Yahweh is Jesus, the Son of God. God in the Old Testament is reveals himself through his Son. In the burning bush is the Son of God. It's a Christophany. The angel of the Lord is the Son of God. That is the way in which we have to understand God always reveals himself through his Son. And the Son of God had already spoken these words to another father thousands of years ago before his father spoke them to him. And I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 22. This cannot be lost on us. In Genesis 22, God, the Son, comes to Abraham, the Father. Notice the reversal. In Mark 1, it's God the Father speaking to God the Son, but here it's God the Son speaking to Father Abraham. Genesis 22, after these things, God, and that's God the Son, tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham and he said, here am I. And he said this, this, watch this. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's the exact wording from Mark 1. Take your son, your one and only son, the one you love. The father says to the son in Mark 1, you are my son, the one that I love. These words are now here in Genesis 22 spoken by the son to Abraham. Take your son, the one that you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. Drop down to verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood. But the angel of the Lord, who is the Son of God, called out to him and said from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to that place, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Here is God the son telling Abraham, take your son to Mount Moriah. And on the third day, offer him, offer this son up. And the son looks back to his dad and he says this, where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. Thousands of years later, Jesus would go up to this very mountain, Mount Moriah, and in obedience to his father, and willingly he would be that very son in the stead of Isaac. Where is the lamb for the slaughter? Where is the Lamb? He's in the baptismal water in Mark 1. He is hearing the Father say to him from heaven what he said to Abraham thousands of years ago You are my son, the one that I love. With you, I am well pleased. And when Jesus heard that word, he knew exactly what it meant. His calling was to be the one that would die instead of Isaac. He would be the substitute and the lamb and the ram that would take our place, and in these waters, at this time, the whole triune God is coming together and putting Jesus forth as the only one who could be the substitute for sin up on that same mountain that Isaac would have been offered. Jesus went there, laid his life down, and said yes to this, and because the Father is pleased with him, the Father is pleased with you. That's what's going on here. Where Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son, the Father did. And where Isaac was willing but didn't have to die, Jesus was willing and he did die. You see, you say, man, Pastor, all that's going on in this passage, all that and more. All that and more. So I want to close with this. We see Jesus getting in our line. Let's go back to Mark 1 and wrap this up. We see Jesus getting in a line that didn't belong to him, but belonged to us in the baptism. Because Jesus gets in this line, we begin, we get to see, begin to see heaven opened up for us. That which had been closed to us now is now open to us. And in a voice of love that comes from heaven, a love that was spoken directly to the Son, but had, but had all kinds of ramifications. For us, in the love of the Father for the Son, listen, is the love of the Father and the Son for you. Let me say that again. In the love of the Father for the Son is the love of the Father and the Son for you. And all of this is a foreshadowing of how that love is going to be unfolded for us in the Gospel of Mark. And so I close with Peter's words. Though having not seen him, don't you love him? Oh, we love him. And though we don't see him now, oh, we just saw him. Don't you believe in him? And even though we do not see him physically, with the eyes of faith, doesn't he give you joy in your heart? A joy inexpressible and full of glory. And then you say, oh, but Pastor David... I just am so weak today. Those words are great, but my faith is weak. That's all right. Jesus is not done giving himself to you yet. Because he's going to give himself to you right here again and again through one another. Aren't you glad that Jesus went into that water for you? And aren't you glad that Jesus came out of that water for you? Because Jesus went into that tomb for you and he came out of that tomb for you. Rest. Rest in that love today. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came on a mission to assault into enemy territory and ransom us. And that we are the bride that you have captured with your life, death, burial, and resurrection. You have opened heaven for us. You are the greater Isaac for us. You are the fulfillment of baptism for us. You are everything for us. And we love you. And we trust you. We confess that you are our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. Come worship with us every Sunday morning at 10.50 a.m. For information, visit solelychurch.com, S-O-L-I-Church.com. We hope to see you soon. Soli Deo Gloria.